Debbie Rowe, and I am the uh, host for today's webinar. The Tennessee World Affairs Council is presenting this panel on women in national security. Uh, would like to members to mention that if you would like to become a member or subscribe to our newsletter uh, to see more about what the World Affairs Council does, please feel free to look at our website. That's tnwac.org, and you can find lots of great information about that. Um, as again, my name is Deb Monroe, and I'm hosting today. Uh, just as background, I am retired uh, defense intelligence officer. I spent 26 years at the Defense Intelligence Agency. My last position was in the UK, uh, serving as a, the senior DOD uh, liaison at a British base, working with uh, our partners there. It was a terrific uh, opportunity. Um, I want to welcome particularly our panelists who are here today. Uh, together, they have a combined 40 plus years of working in national security uh, positions. Um, they have a diverse amount of experience in academic, military, intelligence, and cyber, uh, the cyber areas. Uh, in the past, it was rare to see women serving in senior positions in the community, particularly when I started working. Um, but these ladies have risen to the tops of their fields and they now strive very much to uh, mentor the next generation of young men and women who want to work um, in national security. Today, I'm going to ask our panel a series of questions designed to give you an idea of what their jobs entail, um, how you could prepare to work in their fields, and advice on dealing with the challenges you could face. Uh, if you have questions, please write them in the Q&A block at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And uh, as we go through, I'll look at those and uh, I will add those to uh, our list of questions as we go forward. Uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce our guest. Um, our first speaker is Layla Gardner. Ms. Gardner is the Assistant Director of Intelligence at uh, in the Office of the Deputy Commandant for Information at Marine Corps Headquarters. Uh, as the Assistant uh, Director uh, of Intelligence, she manages the Headquarters Intelligence Branches and provides professional intelligence management and policy support to the Marine Corps Director of Intelligence and the Deputy Commandant for Information. She oversees Marine Corps intelligence activities in the Corps, uh, represents uh, the Marine Corps in the, within the Defense Department and in the intelligence community. Uh, prior to her selection as the uh, Assistant Director, she served as the Marine Corps Intelligence Mission Manager and advised the leadership on all, active, uh, all aspects of Marine Corps strategic, operational, and tactical intelligence uh, to include current and future programs. Uh, Ms. Gardner was uh, selected as a Defense Intelligence Senior, Le senior Leader in uh, September of 2011. Her area of responsibility includes advancing analysis across the Marine Intelligence Enterprise, the United Intelligence Strategies, National Intelligence Estimates, and uh, she also serves in the Marine Corps Reserve, or, or in the Navy Reserves, sorry, Layla, um, uh, as a commander, uh, specializing force in intelligence. Welcome, Layla. Thank you. Our, 
Mm -hmm. Our second panelist is Safa Sharwan Edwards. Uh, she is the Deputy Director of the Atlantic Council's uh, Cyber Statecraft Initiative. That's under the Digital Forensics Lab. Uh, in this role, she oversees project budgets, program finances, cyber education, workforce development and programming, and flagship events. She also directs the 912 Strategy Challenge Program. It's a scenario-based cyber policy and strategy competition that's held in seven locations across the US, Europe, Africa, and Australia. Excitingly to me, she also launched the Next Gen Fund, a diversity, equity, and inclusion-focused cybersecurity program that makes cyber training accessible to historically underrepresented uh, post-secondary students and nascent professionals in the cybersecurity community uh, and does that through mentorship, education, and in-kind support. She holds an MA in International Affairs with a, conflict, uh, with a concentration in Conflict Resolution, a BA in Political Science from Miami University of Ohio. Uh, Safa, Safa is of Bolivian and Jordanian heritage and speaks Spanish and Arabic. Welcome. Our third guest is Maureen Page, who is the research director for the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, <clears throat> she leads planning, execution, and oversight of intelligence research and analytic tradecraft within the Directorate for Analysis. She oversees development of analytic tradecraft guidance, leads uh, <clears throat> analytic outreach programs, and guides DIA's product evaluation and analytic lessons learned efforts. She previously previously served as the good morning, the senior defense intelligence analyst or SDIA for executive production, as SDIA for the U.S. European Command, and as SDIA for Europe and NATO in DIA's Europe Eurasia Regional Center. Other of her career highlights include. Uh, serving as the White House Situation Room Senior Deputy Officer, providing direct intelligence support to the President of the United States, and serving as the Deputy National Security Officer for Europe uh, on the National Intelligence Council. Hailing from New Jersey, Maureen studied at Harvard, graduating magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts degrees, degree in Social Studies. After college, Ms. Page attended the London School of Economics and Political Science, and graduated with a Master of Science degree in Comparative Politics. So welcome. I am going to go through and uh, I have a list of questions I'm going to ask. And again, if you have questions, put them in the Q&A box and I will add those to the room. Layla, we're going to start with you. Um, national security careers sometimes seem rather mysterious uh, to the general public. Um, how would you characterize the profession and those who successfully serve? Okay. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Deb and Pat, for having me. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here. Hopefully you can hear me. Uh, you don't need to see me, but hopefully you can hear me. Um, and how would I describe a career in national security and, and why it can seem a little mysterious? It's probably um, a little less mysterious after, uh, after uh, the events of the last 10 or 15 days, unfortunately. Uh, with some of our unauthorized disclosures ha having hit the press, but um, that's really just a very a small sliver and really a non-representative 
um, uh, set of circumstances for what we do in national security. So we do things in national security that run the gamut are very, very overt, uh, like Deb and I did uh, together uh, in the UK, where we are managing our partner relationships, which are just as important as managing information. Um, I, people ask me oftentimes what Deb and I did, what our number one job was, and I always said it was to protect the relationship uh, with, the, with our most um, uh, special partner, not our oldest, that's the French, uh, but the special partner uh, in, the, in the British. Uh, but national security, primarily what I do is intelligence work uh, within DOD, specifically within a uniformed armed service, the United States Marine Corps. Um, whereas um, Maureen will likely talk about her uh, career within DIA, which is also in DOD, but it's not necessarily with a service. Uh, it's with the, the department or the fourth estate, as we call it. Um, so uh, it, while it can seem mysterious, I mean, the fundamentals of success in life, I think in any, any kind of career, um, whether it's soft science, hard science, service related, what have you, are, are fundamentally the same. You're going to have a set of circumstances and an agenda that you're trying to advance um, with your organization, unless you're, you know, a, a single entrepreneur, and you're going to work within systems of systems uh, and across different partnerships and enterprises to get things done. Um, I would say the things that can make you or will make you successful, uh, among other things, it, there's no magic uh, secret sauce here, is just to uh, stay engaged with what you're doing, continually learn, um, uh, always be in a, a position of, uh, of curiosity and learning and humility uh, and uh, good things tend to happen. Show up on time, it's the same things that like Admiral McRaven talked about in his, his uh, epic uh, commencement address at UT where he said, you know, first thing you do is you make your bed, make your bed every morning. And making your bed is, is sort of a euphemism for making sure that you're brilliant at the basics and you start the day off right every day and things are gonna fall into, into place after that. So uh, I would say um, there are some fundamentals within the intelligence world uh, which is just a part of the national security world. And that is uh, to use critical thinking, uh, to always learn, be willing to have your assumptions uh, challenged, uh, most importantly, be an effective communicator, uh, both in written and oral form. I would say the written form is probably as growing in importance uh, right now uh, within the community, simply because it seems to be decreasing in importance in the general population. And so that that if you have that skill set, uh, it will it will set you apart from from your peers, uh, certainly these days. And and Maureen, uh, as the research director, could probably get more into how we actually train our analysts, not just to be able to write you know sentences that are grammatically correct and and uh, can communicate a point, but intelligence writing is a is actually a technical skill. It's a technical writing skill, and we do things in a certain way with analytic integrity, uh, tradecraft standards, and that kind of thing. Um, so that our, the policymakers and the decision makers can can make the best informed uh, decision. I think I'll probably leave it at that. Okay, thank you. Uh, does anyone else have anything to add to that? No? Okay, so we'll, we'll go on with our next question. Uh, this is for Safa, and it, it kind of follows up with uh, uh, Layla's comments. What suggestions can you give to those looking to pursue a job like yours? Yeah, I, I think a few things stand out to me. The first one is one, get specific. And when you're a student, that can actually be one of the most challenging parts of this process is to get specific about what are certain roles, responsibilities, communities, or organizations that stand out to you as and that interest you. Um, for myself, when I did a lot of Model UN and Model Arab League in college, 
uh, think tanks really stood out to me and the role that they play in shaping analysis and shaping the way that policymakers look at certain issues. Um, that's, that, that's just my story. Every single person is different. So thinking about what kind of communities and responsibilities are of interest to you, I think is a really good starting point. And then using that information that you gain from yourself to inform the information, informational interviews or internship application processes that you want to engage in. Um, the other recommendation I have is to intern, which sounds really like a no-brainer, but I know for myself in college, it was really challenging to find the time to apply for internships and to also find the funding to support uh, moving to DC, where a lot of these internships tend to be tend to be based. Um, you need experience and relationships in order to get get by in this in this community. Um, even if you take an internship that you don't love, that's still okay because you're going to learn something through that process about responsibilities or roles that just maybe are not that interesting to you or that you would like to not do again. Um, and you, but you don't have to commit to it as a full-time permanent job. It's just a three-month gig, which is really nice. Um, and through that internship process, you make friends. And it sounds very simple, but it's more like, are you making, are you building those relationships with fellow interns? I know a lot of interns that I interned with that I still keep in touch with. We still support each other in our, our, our various different types of programming. That connectivity is also really important. In addition to your supervisor, um, there are people who supervise me and were my bosses who are now my friends and that you build those relationships slowly over time and you build that trust through that internship. Um, some of these internships are gonna be unpaid uh, and some will be paid. It's up to the, the applicant to make a determination of what you want to do and what you can do and what you can handle financially. Um, the one thing I will shamelessly plug is that the Atlantic Council is still offering remote internships. Uh, so it's a really good opportunity if you're looking to get some experience, but you're not sure if you can travel or re relocate to a policy hub like DC, that's totally okay. A lot of these internships are still remote, um, but I highly recommend that, that students really, really think long and hard about how to use those internships to shape your career. Excellent. Uh, ladies, anything else to add, Maureen or Layla? Okay. I, I will foot stomp the importance of internships. Um, for Maureen, uh, most colleges and universities are preparing students for future careers. What kind of skills, and this is a perfect follow-up to uh, what Safa said, what kind of skills should aspirants learn and develop to enter a career? like yours. Yeah, thanks. And really, really great to be here today. Um, so I, I want to tackle that from two perspectives. One, what my experience was, but then also because that was 20 years ago, knowing that things are a little different now and the skill sets, um, I think, are more varied. Um, but I think, you know, my experience and my colleagues' experience and what has sort of stood the test of time is a tremendous intellectual curiosity, right? A real interest in the way the world works, international systems, countries, an appetite for foreign affairs, foreign languages. Um, I think it is good to be broad and specific, right? So to take courses that help you understand uh, national security and the issues facing the country, the alliance, the world order, um, and then try to dive down into specific areas that you have a passion for and really try to channel that intellectual curiosity. I think that was very much um, what drove a lot of people to seek careers um, 20 years ago. I think it still stands up, but also now you want to widen the aperture to think about 
future disruptive technology, uh, STEM, um, certainly for Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, the science, um, technical areas are a huge growth area for hiring, for, for the demands that uh, our readership and our clients put upon the agency. So um, it's good to, if that's your passion, also to, to grow in that and, and to drive on in, in, in that area. Um, I, I double down on what Layla said, communication skills are absolutely essential to success, you know, probably regardless of career, super important in the intelligence community. We write a lot um, and we have to be succinct. We are dealing with uh, readers who are super time constrained um, and make tremendously weighty decisions. And so if you can demonstrate that you can synthesize a lot of information and distill it in a way that's very comprehensible and succinct to a senior client, that's a real recipe for success. Doing that verbally as well as doing that in your written products um, is essential. And so in school, it's really important to refine your abilities to write, to communicate, um, really take opportunities to brief. Um, I know that was not a huge component when I was in college. It was mostly submitting writing write written products. Um, so I did seek out ways that I could do more public speaking and that I think is I think that's helpful and it's a skill set that'll take you far regardless of your career. So I think it's yeah it's channeling sexual curiosity, honing your communication skills, really thinking about what's next after next um, in terms of technologies, the uh, the challenges the world faces, pandemics, it really is broadening um, in terms of what the intelligence community has to grapple with every day. And I think that gives you a, a lot of room to run in terms of, you know, what your, where your passions align. Um, I would tell you, hand it back to Deb uh, with sort of a little vignette, which was when, before I joined the intelligence community, um, I was interning at General Electric and uh, what, my mentor there asked me, you know, oh, career rise, what are you thinking? What's something that you really get up each morning and I really enjoy doing. And I said, oh, I really enjoy reading the newspaper. And so my mentor, General Electric said, General Electric said, well, I don't know, can you be a professional reader? Um, and I do reflect on that moment. And I think having a career as an analyst is pretty close to as, as close as it gets to being a professional reader. Now you have to layer in briefing and writing and synthesizing. But I think if you like reading the foreign affairs section of the paper, a lot of that stuff comes naturally. And I think that that still stands up even as we sort of, you know, enter all these newfangled areas uh, of uh, world affairs. Back to you, Deb, thank you. Okay, thank you. That, that uh, all of your comments are, I think, are just spot on. So thank you very much. Any other follow-ups to Maureen's ladies? Anything else? Okay. Um, Layla, to what extent did you plan your career? Uh, this is this is something because a lot of people say, well, how do I plan for this? I know I did not plan my career, but I ended up there anyway. Thank goodness. Um, if you were to ask yourself 10 or 15 years ago uh, what you would be doing professionally now, uh, what would you say and what would you tell yourself? I um, can tell you that my career was extremely unplanned, like 100% unplanned. Um, I... Um, had been going to college, um, kind of kicking around, not really focusing on too much, um, and ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps Reserve because I wanted to do something that was meaningful to me. Uh, and so I walked into my recruiter's uh, office and said, hey, I, I, um, 
I need to get back in time for school in the fall semester or the spring semester. I don't want to take too much time out of my real life, but I want to join the reserves. So I know that boot camp is 12 weeks and then there'll be some uh, additional training and, and what do you have? And this master sergeant basically told me to get out and go away. So I was like, okay, fine. So I left and I came back the next day and she kind of laughed. She said, okay, I was just seeing if you were going to come back. So that was lesson one. Uh, if you have, if your gut is telling you to do something, keep doing it, go back. So she listened to what I wanted to do and, and, uh, and I wanted to get the GI bill. And, and again, I wanted to be a Marine and that kind of thing. So I, I uh, told her my, my sort of desirements in that regard. And then she went to the big catalog and said, okay, yeah, absolutely 13 weeks, 12 weeks, 13 weeks of Paris Island. And she was like, well, I've got a, I've got a school for welders in Virginia beach, which was about two and a half hour drive from my home. And she was like, it's only two weeks. So you'll, you'll be back in time for school. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, sign me up. So I signed the paperwork go on my way. And she calls me back about a week later. I had to take a bunch of tests, these ASVAB tests and whatnot, math tests and stuff. And she calls me about a week later thinking that, you know, she just need me to come in and take a fitness test or something. She was like, yeah, yeah, you're not going to Walden school. I was like, what do you mean? She was like, you're going to go to intelligence school. Your test results came back and I'm not like, I can get anybody to be a welder, but your scores are that you, you know, I, I need, I need to fill this boat seat. Uh, at Intel school. And that's how I ended up in intelligence analysis. So I can tell you right now, I did not plan to become an intelligence analyst, but like Maureen, I have a voracious appetite for reading, uh, addicted to world affairs, a total news junkie. Twitter was like made for people like me because it's like a total scrolling news feed all the time curated the right way. Uh, so I went to Intel school and discovered I had a pretty good grasp uh, and, and natural uh, uh, talent for briefing. Uh, orally, standing up in front of and, and talking to people um, and being able to, uh, uh, like Maureen said, uh, summarize things and, and be very succinct and, and communicate effectively uh, to senior leaders. And uh, so I finished my Intel school and I went back to college and, and that kind of thing. And, and then I kept doing the Intel work as a reservist. And then the uh, Bosnia conflict happened and I was recalled to active duty and I went to boot camp, or, you know, I deployed to Bosnia. And before I did, um, I got a threat brief. My team got a threat brief from the Marine Corps. And I was fascinated by the fact that there were civilian and military people prepping this detachment that we were going to go deploy overseas. And at that time, it was a very, seemed, seemed to be very dangerous and exciting deployment we were about to embark on. Uh, you know, little did we know that a few years later, 9-11 would happen and everything would change. And um, I was really intrigued by the, the civilian analyst that was briefing. And so I talked to him afterwards and he said, so how did you, I didn't know that the Marine Corps had civilian analysts. How did you get into this? And he said, oh, well, I went to Mary Washington College and then they, I was an intern and, and now I'm on the Balkans account. I said, wow, that's fascinating. He said, give me a call when you get back from your deployment. I'd love to talk to you about what you see on the ground there. Okay. So I get back from my deployment, you know, however many months later, and um, I'm literally sitting in a pub in downtown Fredericksburg outside and this analyst comes walking down the street. And he was like, oh, hey, Sergeant Gardner, hey, how was your deployment? And, you know, just like, I had, you know, I had seen him the week before. And I said, oh, it was fantastic. I learned so much. Great people, great mission. That kind of, he says, you know what? My Balkans analyst resigned last week. You should apply for her job. Well, I'm, I said, I'm not done with college yet. And he was like, that's fine. We'll work with you. And so for when people say, well, how did you map out your career? I say, I did not. Uh, but what I will tell you is something that has uh has uh, served me very well over my 30 year career. And that is, I have always prepared myself to be competitive for the next opportunity. 
And that means in my demeanor and how I work with and around people and for people, the work ethic that I bring to every project, uh, my curiosity to where if somebody has a tiger team or a special project that they need uh, some folks to gather around uh, to get after, very rarely do I say no, because that's how you network and that's how you learn how other systems work within your organization and within your community and enterprise. So people say, give me a roadmap for, for a successful career like yours. And I tell them there is no roadmap like that. You will, if you say by 25, I need X, by 30, I need to have done this, by 35, I have to be at this grade, by 40, I have to, I have to be at this, in this particular position. That is a recipe for frustration and, and heartache because there are way too many competing variables within uh, our enterprise for that to ever really work. But if you prepare yourself to be competitive for the next opportunity that interests you, you're usually going to get where you're supposed to be. Uh, so that, that's when, and, and I've said this to many mentees over the years, um, and, and that's something that has really um, stood me well. I would also offer that if you are struggling with whether something is worth it or not, for instance, you're going to get a, a master's degree or something in the evenings, or you're going to pursue something different at work, you really have to look within yourself and ask yourself, what are you willing to give up to achieve that goal? And if you're not willing to give up certain things, then you need to reassess and, and just really understand kind of where you are in your both personal and professional space and be honest with yourself about what you're willing to do. That's really the difference between having a career and having a job. It's really always seeking self-improvement, uh, always trying, obviously having the best uh, attitude and work ethic and work product uh, while you're at work, continually um, learning more about your portfolio and, and developing yourself uh, that's when, you know, the old saying, that's when you, you're not, if you enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life kind of thing. But it's really important for you to understand kind of where you are in your life also. As a, somebody that's been in the business for a long time and I've supervised hundreds of people, um, it's uh, some people step in and they step out of career. That doesn't mean they don't always have a job. And that is totally okay. If I had, so I'll, I'll kind of turn your question on its head, Deb, and go back to the 10 or 15 years ago and say, I wish that I had given myself more grace at, back then. Uh, to not have to uh, necessarily go a thousand miles an hour all the time because, for instance, I had childcare uh, issues or elder care issues. You know, people my age have elder care issues with their parents. Um, to recognize that sometimes you're not going to be able to give 150% to your job or your career, that's okay. At the end of the day, your job is transactional. Your career is about you and your self-fulfilling and, and how you're uh, developing yourself. And kind of understanding where you are will also help you set boundaries as you're going forward. So yeah, talking to myself 25 years ago, as opposed to 10 to 15 years ago, that's probably what I, I wish that I had been able to look, you know, through the looking glass and, and say that to myself. But as far as having a plan, no, the only plan was enjoy. I want to, I'm going to keep doing this while I'm having fun and I'm enjoying it and it's fulfilling. And I'm just going to make sure that, that I'm competitive for the next opportunity. The powers that be are going to, everything's going to shake out otherwise, but um, just always preparing myself uh, to be competitive, uh, I, I think is the key to success. I can't, couldn't have said it better. Uh, anything, you guys want to add anything uh, to what she said? Anything? Okay. okay, on my end, I only know is have fun, which is, uh, I was not expecting that. That is awesome. <laughs> it is fun. It is fun. Um, 
and it, it, lots of great war stories from uh, from various points in our life, I can guarantee. Uh, Safa, national security kinds of careers, your kinds of work uh, at the Atlantic Council in, in the, the think tank realm of national security, it requires a commitment to serve. And that's something I wanted to kind of foot stomp for the folks listening um, because that kind of a mindset differs from somebody who's looking to go into uh, a commercial career, you know, where maybe a paycheck is the biggest thing and how much money is that they make is their, is their marker. So kind of characterize the difference um, in, you know, those kinds of mindsets and, um, what's the major challenges you face personally and professionally kind of moving into that service mindset? Yeah, I think my team has an unofficial motto that we kind of, I keep it on a post-it note by my desk. Our team kind of keeps it in the back of their head. Um, and it's, the motto is essentially, it's not about us, period. If it becomes about us, something's going wrong. Um, and it's, it's, we're losing sight, something's going wrong, it's being mismanaged. Um, not sure what that last piece is. It can change from situation to situation, but it's really just not about us. Um, with being a nonprofit think tank, our business model is just gonna be inherently different than a private sector company. And that's perfectly okay. It is what it is. Um, I think it's also kind of tough for younger folks who are getting still you know, finding their footing in this space to get a sense of what do we do? What do we make? What is our product? Uh, how do we function as an organization? And it's our essentially, you know, our role is to create high quality research and analysis that can help inform better decision-making in, in public policy. This high quality analysis has to be developed by our staff and our expert network of fellows, et cetera. Uh, but what we really need to do with this, this content is that we have to move the ball forward and down the line with regards to cyber policy. Um, some issues that we've done in the past have been like maritime cybersecurity, looking at the different types of vulnerabilities, import infrastructure, and how that can imp impact liquefied natural gas, which primarily travels through ships. Um, other items have been open source software. A lot of the proprietary software that we all rely on for our phones and our laptops also run on open source software that is not maintained or protected by anyone because nobody really owns it. And that's a significant vulnerability for our country. That being said, when we look at those issues, it really is not about us. It's about core infrastructure. It's about critical infrastructure, or it's about making sure that the apps you use on your phone are safe and secure for users of technology. So it's really about how do we create how do we create a offer information and analysis that helps policymakers make better decisions to better protect people and how they use technology? Um, that's the nice part is that we're able to kind of create that as like a North Star, but there is a lot of room for error still. Um, you can you can go wrong if you maybe I maybe try to focus too much on one stakeholder's priorities versus another stakeholder's priorities. Um, there's a lot of money floating around in this space. There are a lot, there's a lot of money to be made. And how do you make sure that you're developing analysis that really focuses on security for security's sake, as opposed to security for developing new tools that people can sell? Um, the last piece of this, I think, in terms of challenges is it's really hard to stick to this. Uh, it's hard to be principled sometimes, but I think it also means that um, because we're service oriented, we might be more inclined to say yes, to say, yes, I can help with this. Yes, I can do that research project. Yes, I can give you a briefing. However, um, our time is finite. It's a finite resource. There are literally not enough hours in the day. And my job as a deputy is often to manage my team and make sure that we're allocating resources appropriately and protecting people's time. 
Um, if I have a staffer who's saying yes to every single briefing for a member on the Hill, um, they might not have time to actually have the headspace to do good quality analysis and research. Um, nobody's happy in that, in that particular scenario. So how do we create space for people so that they can, they can do really good work? Um, but we're also still engaging the right stakeholders and still moving the ball forward because maybe not treating it with the same level of urgency as another organization would. Um, I think that the bandwidth challenge is it's not going anywhere. It's a constant challenge that we work through. But I think you know, as your team grows and you secure, secure more funding, that obviously changes uh, year to year. Okay, thank you. Uh, anything to add from uh, Maureen or Layla? Okay. Maureen, uh, we've touched on internships uh, as we've gone through this. Talk a little bit about the criticality of that. And um, this is, I'll open this up to everybody, uh, opportunities for internships and how critical they are um, as uh, folks want to move into uh, national security jobs. Yeah, I'm glad we're going to um, get the whole panel to weigh in on this because I'm going to shamelessly plug my uh, agency. Um, I'm going to say www.dia.mil, dia.mil, that's the website. We have a great internship program. And I say this as someone who is not an intern at DIA, but has worked with and hired a lot of our intel, a lot of our interns, uh, interns who came through the door. Um, I was an intern at State Department, so I um, was an intern in the political section, U.S. Embassy London, and it was the the thing that kind of gave me the uh, impetus, the sort of imagination to think about a career in national security, um, because I uh, was able to write reporting cables when I was there, and um, really enjoyed it, loved going out sort of understanding the Northern Ireland peace process and and conveying that. Um, and my boss there was like, oh, you're 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 pretty decent at writing uh, reporting cables. And I thought, oh, maybe maybe there's a career here. And uh, so that was really formative. So I think um, there's so on internships, uh, there are huge financial constraints, uh, which are a real thing. And um, and that is so important to sort of take that into consideration in terms of what what is possible. I wound up uh, working you know, the summer before I did the internship to basically fund that um, that ability to go to London um, for those those four months. Um, and that was, uh, I think, a good call in retrospect. Um, so uh, I, I think of like, you know, when when people do improv, right, the sort of rule of improv is you say yes to everything when you're on stage. And internships are the sort of that improv phase of your career where you get to say yes to a lot of things to test it out. So it really, it's great for the employers because they get to see potential full-time employees at work, but it's really, really great for you all to test out different careers um, um, because it gives you, I think, that insight later on in life when you have to be choosy and narrow things down. Um, at our agency, DIA, uh, we pay our interns, which is something that State Department wasn't doing at the time when I was there. Um, and we have a great program. The only challenge is, is that you have to apply pretty far out because you will have a security clearance while you are an intern at DIA. So April was the month that uh, we do the hiring for the following summer internship. So I believe we're going through the end of this month. You've got uh, about a week or so um, on that. I know that's a little forward planning to think about the summer of 2024, but it's well worth it um, because you'll get a real experience within the IC. Uh, you'll be asked to write products, go to briefings. 
you know, our interns, we empower them and really want to give them uh, the breadth of our experience here, but we also want them to run with it and to, to learn as they go. So it's a really nice balancing act. You really feel like a full-time employee while you're an intern here. Um, people will continue their internship through their college and uh, graduate school. Um, so they'll come here during the summers in between uh, the, the school year. Um, and so you continue to you know, not only further your career at DIA, you've got a salary, you've got a, uh, you know, a job there for the summer as well. So, um, and then um, it gives you a great launching pad to get a full-time career here where, you know, you can serve around the world, uh, tremendous opportunities, or you can say like, I did that for two summers. I did it for a summer and I like this aspect, but not others. And so I want to drive on and this direction. So I think it gives you real empowerment to sort of understand where you want to be choosy. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I'll end where I started, dia.mil. Um, please hit me up with any questions on that. It's a great program. And that's also a place where we do our full-time unemployment options too. So highly encourage people along those lines. Okay, back to you, Deb. Okay, Safa, you've mentioned it before, internships. Yeah, on internships. Um, so I will also shamelessly plug the Atlantic Council's Young Global Young Global Professionals Program. It is a paid internship program. We recently started paying interns, uh, I think three, starting three years ago, which we're really proud of. Uh, in addition to that, um, certain teams do offer remote internships. My team still offers remote internships because we're really passionate about making sure that we offer opportunities to folks who are outside the DC area, especially uh, it makes it a lot easier for applicants to not have to worry about relocation expenses and rent in DC. Um, if that just means that you can stay in your college dorm and do really good work with a stable internet connection, we want to support that. Um, that being said, I think the way that um, I will also plug that I'm, I'm a former Atlantic Council intern. Um, and I think when you're looking for internships, do some digging and look at certain organizations and their staff and try to see how many of their staffers are former interns. Um, there are some organizations that really try to use that internship pipeline to help backfill specific roles in their organization. And I know when I was interning in DC during grad school, um, I was trying to make sure that I was specifically took interviews with organizations that had a really good track record of hiring interns. And when I became an Atlantic Council intern in fall 2016, I want to say that at the time, about 50% of staff were former interns. Um, that was a pretty good rate to me. I had two or three classmates who were currently Atlantic Council interns, former interns turned program assistants, intern staffers. So that kind of encouraged me to like opt to apply with Atlantic Council over, say, Brookings. Um, it's just I, I, that way I knew that if I was making uh, submitting an application, it might be worth it long term. Um, the other piece of this that I want to that I want to uh, talk through is just making sure that the internship opportunity gives you a chance to be a full part of the team um, where you have responsibilities and you really help move the ball forward with the team's efforts and missions. Um, a lot of interns on our teams help uh, help author reports and analysis that we do. It's something that's really near and dear to our hearts to make sure that folks have something that they can indicate back to on their resumes when they go on to their next steps. Even if they don't end up uh, working with us long-term, we do often have them stay, stay on as, as consultants during the semester, uh, but also sometimes they move laterally within the organization, maybe working with another team that we work with as well. Oh, Deb, I think you're muted. Okay. Hey, Deb, I'm going to chime in also, because the Marine Corps also has an intern program, most of DOD does, and you can find our internship um, opportunities on USA Jobs, which is on opm.gov, and then you navigate down to usajobs.gov, uh, and just type in like Quantico intern or whatever, and they're paid as well. Like uh, DIAs, they take a, a fairly long lead time um, because of the security clearance requirements, 
Um, but uh, the you'll get you know interviewed multiple times for the clearance, and you'll have to fill out an SF eighty special form eighty six SF eighty six uh, kind of thing, and then uh, then you can come into the building because we work in secure facilities. Um, but our I was never an intern, but I used to run the Marine Corps Intel intern program, and we also use it as a pipeline. Uh, and it just was a lot of fun. We do things like we would send our, our young interns down to uh, an operational Marine Corps base and they would get to go, you know, shoot a gun uh, or they would get to ride on an amphibious uh, assault vehicle uh, kind of thing. Um, and so we would try to indoctrinate them into Marine Corps culture and esprit de corps as much as we possibly could. Because, you know, little old Marine Corps has to compete against, you know, behemoth agencies like NGA and DIA and CIA and that kind of thing. So we, we hope to ply people with the... Uh, with the aura of the Marine Corps to get them to stay and to apply. Uh, but we also have one, it's on USA Jobs, which is the federal hiring um, uh, website. Uh, and I think that I'm still friends with some of the interns that I uh, led 20 years ago. And they're now you know, very successful uh, people within government or think tanks uh, as well. So it, it highly recommend the intern program. There's no shortage of them. It just really depends what you're looking for. This time I unmuted it correctly. Um, all right, I, I, these last few questions are for everybody. And uh, again, for those who are, are listening, if you have specific questions, feel free to put them in the Q&A box and I will ask those of everyone. So first question for everybody here, um, describe your typical day. Layla, we can start with you. So. I thought you were trying to get people to come into the intelligence community uh, with this <laughs> with this Zoom because I'm going to tell you about my typical day and you're probably not going to want to come work for us. Um, but I don't have a typical day other than that they're long. Uh, but that's just because uh, the work that we do is is um, not nonstop. It's 24 uh, seven. But that doesn't mean that you know when you come into the community you're expected to work 24 seven. Well, you know it ebbs and flows with crisis and that kind of thing. But um, I also because for my own quality of life, choose to live fairly far south of, of Washington, D.C. I work at the Pentagon, but I live 50 miles south, and it's sort of like dog years. You know, every mile on 95 is like dog years uh, as far as mileage goes. So it's a, you know, it's a very grind, and thank goodness for podcasts when those finally were invented. There's a reason some of us don't live in D.C. anymore. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, but it's worth it. I live in this little bucolic uh, historic town called Fredericksburg, and it's just, it's worth the commute. Um, so once you kind of find your, your sweet spot uh, in your personal life, uh, then you have to make those trade-offs. But um, I'm up fairly early. I'm usually dialed into senior leader um, video teleconferences pretty early, usually between 6 and 6.30 uh, at my desk. Um, and then I have a variety of higher headquarters meetings that I deal with, with our deputy commandant for information or the assistant uh, commandant for the Marine Corps, that kind of thing. And then the rest of the day, there are a lot of battle rhythm events because the intelligence community and the defense intelligence enterprise are very complicated organizations and systems of systems. So we do a lot of coordination and a lot of governance um, uh, type uh, organizations. So as a senior executive, I spend a lot of my time um, in what are called deputy executive committee meetings, DEXCOMs, and then I have to brief my, my boss for the executive committee meetings uh, on everything from policy to resources and budget uh, to crisis du jour. Uh, frankly, uh, to how we're doing things with manpower, um, you know, Uncle Sam gets a say, and the taxpayer uh, gets a say. We spend, just to put your mind at ease, we spend in a, a tremendous amount of time ensuring that every dollar and every hour spent on behalf of the taxpayer is accounted for and is, and is, value, is valuable. 
Um, I know that there's there's a lot of you know popular narrative out there that there, that the bureaucracy is a black hole uh, or somewhat. Uh, Deb and I can tell you because we've been in the game longer than, than Zappa and Maureen that um, there are far fewer uh, federal employees now um, than there almost ever have been, and the, the work doesn't stop. So that's that's exciting because it's very meaningful work that we do. Uh, but I do a lot of meetings, uh, and then I spend a lot of time leading my people and helping them to solve problems. Um, because they're the ones that are kind of digging ditches and they're the ones that are actually doing the deconfliction with, you know, period, dot, or happy to glad in a policy document, which actually that matters. A specific word misplaced in a sentence or a paragraph can really upend the spirit and intent and desired outcome of a policy. So there's a lot of time spent doing this kind of coordination work. And then there's the analytic side. So I manage the entire intelligence process for the Marine Corps, or I lead people that manage it on a daily basis. So you're talking the intel cycle of, you know, collection, re research, direction, you know, analysis, dissemination, the entire cycle. There's discrete cycles within each of those steps of the intel cycle as well. And then constantly answering, uh, answering uh, leadership questions, whether it's an intelligence question or just uh, re responding to an information request. There's, there's a difference there with a distinction often. Um, so it's really, there is no typical day other than, I mean, I have battle rhythm events, um, but that's what keeps it interesting and fun is that you just never know, uh, like we say in the military, the enemy gets a vote, best laid plans. You can have everything is best laid plans and you rehearse and you practice and everybody knows where they're supposed to be. And then the enemy gets a vote. And sometimes the enemy is just the clock. Sometimes the enemy is a, a competing uh, initiative or competing crisis. Uh, so enemy can be used in many ways, but um, there is no typical day, honestly, in what I do. Um, and that at least keeps it interesting and it helps me to keep track of what day it is also, because otherwise it can be a, a bit of a grind, but, um, yeah, no, no typical day for what I've got going on. Okay. Safa, your turn to weigh in. I also have the same answer of, I also don't have a typical day. It really just depends on the season, the time of year. Um, some things are really mundane, but they keep the trains running on time. Some things are really fun and different and dynamic. Uh, it's a balancing act, but I guarantee that you will always be using a different part of your brain, which is really, I, I find that very refreshing to have a different responsibility or a different kind of thing to do every day. Sometimes it's things as mundane as budgets. Um, I manage our center's finances. Um, I try to make sure that I'm tracking our expenses so that we can get people raises, promotions, um, office home, uh, offer home office allowances, some things like that, but also some more fun items like, can I afford to take my team paintballing this fall? Can we buy some team merch? I don't know, but you know, that's my job is to make sure that our budgets are balanced so that I can make those investments in my team and make sure that people can do, uh, also have some fun activities. Um, other parts of this, I think obviously is the research is helping ensure that we are hiring the right staff and hire and bring on the right kind of senior fellows to help support the research that we want to do and that we need to do and that we're getting demand signals from, from government and industry. Um, so this means identifying the right kinds of experts, um, interviewing them, affiliating them with our program and creating very actionable deliverables for them, whether it's supporting X number of workshops or Y number of research papers on this particular topic, just to make sure that, again, we can tie that back to our core mission of creating high quality analysis and research for, uh, for decision makers. Um, and I think the other fun part of this is, is really just building programming. And I think that's a fancy word for basically events. Um, this is the typical think tank event, which is like a 90 minute panel. We don't do that quite as often. I'm, I'm really lucky where I get to develop uh, competitions for university students, where we develop different types of cyber scenarios where students respond to them over the course of two days. 
in addition to that, so one, we're making these really fun, really challenging scenarios that are basically exploring like a really bad day in cyberspace. But in addition to that, we also create programming for those students that's around the sidelines of that event, trying to connect them with mentors, potential employers, bringing in some folks from CIA to meet with students and answer any questions they have about internships and jobs at the CIA, but also trying to connect them with security researchers and hackers who can walk them through how this kind of cyber incident happens. Um, that's one of the more fun parts of the job where you can really create these engagement opportunities for folks to learn from one another. Um, if you want to invite folks from DIA and the Marine Corps, I know that Maureen and uh, Layla would love to uh, participate. Just, just, just putting that out there. Uh, Maureen, I'll let you uh, wrap up this question. Thanks, Deb. You got our back there. Um, thanks for that plug. Um, yeah, so I will. I will describe a little bit. I just finished up a job in December, so I think that was a little more consistent. And I will describe that day. Uh, my boss asked me for our newsletter, monthly newsletter, to write sort of day in the life, kind of my every day. And um, I wrote far too much about like what I listened to on my commutes. And he was like, oh, you didn't talk that much about your job. So I won't make that mistake here. But I used to take the train in um, and I will listen to BBC Sounds, which is a great app. And it gives you the archives of all of the BBC radio stations. So I love to listen to different um, programs on BBC and also to listen to world news, right? To get sort of spun up as I'm on the train thinking about what, um, what is sort of crisis-y overnight, what the long-term issues. And so I listened to that, walk into the office, um, and my job was to uh, curate, review, and prioritize something called the Defense Intelligence Digest, which is uh, the department's uh, flagship uh, intelligence analytics product for the secretary. So listening to the world service, kind of thinking like, okay, what's been um, crashing overnight to come in then? And I would uh, lead a meeting with our team who was briefing the policymakers in the um, in the Pentagon to get their feedback in terms of what the policymakers were most concerned about. Um, so after cross-talking with those groups of people to, to understand what was hot, what are their long-term strategies, I would go through and review the articles that uh, my fellow analysts at DIA were writing um, for the department. So these articles are kind of a page and a half and they really hit not only sort of a threat um, to the United States, but also the opportunities and the options to mitigate uh, potential threats to the US. So I would go through and review a bunch of those products, you know, in through lunchtime, talk to the authors and say, how can we crystallize your point here? You know, we're dealing with people who maybe have a couple minutes to digest a very complex subject. How can we really cut to the chase quicker? How can we use visuals to capture the key takeaways? Um, so I'll do that, and that'll be the book that we will send out that night um, to the policymakers so they have it first thing in the morning. Um, in the afternoon, I will talk with analysts to frame out those papers. So the morning, I'm reading the papers that they've drafted, that have been reviewed a few times. In the afternoon, I'm talking to the analysts before they put pen to paper, right? And so they're like, hey, I know that there's kind of this big thing. Um, how do I make it accessible? How do I make it clear for someone like um, policymaker to understand quickly what's the so what here? And so I will talk through and call it framing those uh, those papers uh, with the analysts, which is super fun because that's just basically everything under the sun, a lot of technical issues, but also, you know, kind of the uh, the core of our national security issues. 
of the country. So really enjoy that interaction. And then, you know, in the evening, talk through with the President's Daily Brief staff, kind of what our Defense Intelligence Digest articles, how they're adding to the mix in terms of policymakers beyond the Pentagon and sort of what they're consuming. And, and then kind of close it up with my team in the evening and then listen to BBC uh, radio on the way home. And, and you know, it, that was, you know, for a year and a half, it had a, lot, a sort of circadian rhythm to it each day, but it was very fulfilling to be able to really get my, um, you know, really, really get immersed in the substance and the analysis and to help people write better papers. And, you know, by no means are we perfect. And I made mistakes along the way, but it was really fun to, have that uh, really clear mission every day. Back to you, Deb. Well, I can't think of anybody better to do it. So uh, there it is. Um, you all have very challenging, demanding jobs. Um, I think each of you have alluded to uh, trying to find that balance between um, your work obligations and professional lives. So we'll make the round robin again. Layla. Um, a brief synopsis of how you do it and uh, recommendations for those who are coming into the business. Sure, um, so it, it's hard uh, and it really depends on your personality. I know people that are very adept at unplugging and, and having a very sharp delineation between their professional and their personal lives. Notwithstanding, you know, reading constantly in the evenings, I, I think as those of us that are in this business, that's kind of how we nerd out anyway. It's kind of what we tend to do in the evenings. We go down rabbit holes of documentaries or like Maureen said, listening to BBC sounds on the way to work. That's just situation normal for people like us. So that's not really work. That's something that we enjoy. Um, I would say that, uh, somewhat, Safa probably has a different answer to this given her line of work, but for Maureen and I, um, you know, we, we log off of our main work networks when we leave the office. And so that's a very good, sharp, hard break in between your professional life and your personal life. If you're going into the think tank world or you're going to go into corporate intelligence or uh, something like that, you may not be able to do that. And I think that my generation in particular I, I'm going to venture to say that I have the three panelists, I'm the oldest, um, you know, not a digital native at all, uh, you know, didn't have the internet until I was in college, and it was still, it was extremely nascent at that point, I think we could send emails, um, but we would go into this thing called the computer lab at university to type our papers, uh, we, were, we weren't like sitting at Starbucks writing them on our phones, uh, that's just not the way we did things back in the dark ages, um, and so this ease into the information age, uh, I think Bill Clinton famously said the bridge to the information age a couple of times, that was that I was well into adulthood before that really actually happened, especially professionally, uh, because the Marine Corps is, is kind of small. And um, in fact, I started with Marine Corps, my first day as a civilian analyst with the Marine Corps was in August of 2000, and we had just gotten windows on the computers. So yeah, if that gives you an idea of how archaic uh, the military ha had been up until then. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't living, didn't grow up professionally in this immersive information, um, digital native environment that you all have. And, um, and so I couldn't possibly tell you how to create those boundaries. It's very easy for me to say, well, just like turn your phone off or whatever. Maybe that's just not realistic or not the way that, um, that uh, the generations that are getting ready to come out of college uh, are prepared to live their lives. Everything is on your watch and on your phone uh, kind of thing. Um, so you're going to have to figure out a way to create that work-life balance. 
Uh, I, for one, the interns I've had, the junior folks that I've hired over the last several years have been so impressed, so impressed with the altruistic and philanthropic nature of, for the most part, um, the vibe with the, the, the younger, the, the young people, as us old people call you. Uh, and your desire to do something for the greater good, um, you know, traverses your personal and, your, and your, your private lives, which I think is really, really cool. And, but sometimes that can bleed into some burnout and some, like, where is that line between my personal and my professional life? I would just offer to all of you that, um, that there still are boundaries in professional life um, and in management, uh, whether you are in the civilian world, federal government, you go into contracting, you're in, you know, commercial banking, whatever it is that you're in, you still deserve to have your private life and your personal time uh, at, at the same time that you're building your brand and you're building your, your portfolio and you're building your professional reputation and that kind of thing. And, um, and I would offer, it's really important to, to understand where you are in your life, what you're looking to get out of your professional life in whatever time and space that you're in and, and holding to that. Um, because if you don't, you're going to end up being burned out and you're going to hate what you do. Uh, and you're not going to probably like yourself very much. And that's also not a good place to be. Um, you have to, there are times where, you, where you're going to run really, really hard and you're going to feel like you're not getting anywhere. Uh, sort of like the difference between running on a treadmill and running out on, out on the open road. You're going to be sweaty and your legs are going to be sore. But if you're running on a treadmill, you're not actually getting anywhere. Whereas if you're running outside, uh, you're, you're actually putting miles in and you're making distance. So you just got to figure out when you're really tired, it, are you on a treadmill or are you actually running outside and getting some real miles in? Uh, and if you can, if you're comfortable where you are, you're, you're going to be fine. But it's really, I, I just think it's really important for people to create those boundaries um, and know how to, um, how to ensure that you're um, doing things in a sustainable way so that you can continue to be successful as you go forward. Okay, good advice. Safa? I'm terrible at following my own advice. Oh, by the way, I just want to let you all know that. I'm also guilty of that. I think um, one thing that I found, I got into this really bad habit in 2018, 2019, where I would come into the office at 7.30 and leave the office at 7.30. And I say it's a, it's a bad habit because it is. Um, and even to make it even worse, I would take the bus home. I wouldn't even walk home. Um, I was really miserable because I was not getting any sunshine. I was not getting any breaks. It's not really, some people can do 12 hours standing at a desk. That's great for them. I love that for them. Um, for me, it kind of, it kind of wore me down. I had to figure out and kind of like have a come to Jesus moment and be like, okay, so like, what are the things that I absolutely have to do? And maybe 12 hours is not right for me. Maybe it's more like 10 hours and trying to figure out what are your priorities? What do you absolutely have to do? And how can you fit that into the time that you actually do have available to you during the workday? For some people, it's just eight hours. That's again, perfectly okay. For me, I, I had the room for, for 10 hours. That's also fine. Um, it did require for me to get really organized. That meant that I still was logging on early, but it was logging on early not to answer emails, but logging on early to create priorities for myself, get organized, clear my calendar, and create priorities that I can get support from, from my interns and my staff. Um, getting organized helped me become a better person, and it also made my team happier. That's good. Um, the other part of this is, is Asana. I'm going to do a plug for Asana, which is a, a project management platform that my team uses, um, and just being able to set tasks and kind of forget it create a deadline two years in advance or recurring and just forget it. Um, I, there was too much stuff that I was just keeping in my head that was making me very like bogged down or I had too many post-it notes floating around. Having it in one place that I could consistently update and check on really 
honestly made my made me a lot happier, but it also helped me become more productive. Um, I think the other part of this that I always say it makes a huge difference is one, having a supportive spouse or a partner. Um, if you have a partner that's supportive and understands that sometimes you're going to have to surge, sometimes you're going to work long hours, or you're going to have weird responsibilities in your job and this understanding about that, that makes a huge difference. In my particular case, I have a spouse that's very supportive, but he also works a lot less than I do. Um, so if I need help with something, he's there to support. Uh, he works for the federal government. So when he logs off after eight hours, he logs off after eight hours. And that's nice. And I'm appreciative of that. Um, but I think it's also just the other part of this is knowing that everyone works differently. I have colleagues who they want to log off at five and they want to be offline and I need to respect that and create the room for that. That's great. I have colleagues who don't have Outlook on their phone and don't have Teams on their phone. Again, I will only ask them to install that when we are on a work trip. because <laughs> um, I actually do need to get in touch with you during a work trip because we are in a foreign country together. Um, but that being said, it's, it's really about being flexible and understanding that everyone works differently and creating space for that. Excellent. Maureen? Hey, um, so I, you know, I, I strive to be a super optimistic and positive person. So I don't want to like end on a slightly discouraging note, but um, it's super hard. Work-life balance is, I mean, if you're driven, you're really um, excited about these important issues, it is, it is really hard to strike that balance. Um, and I think acknowledging it's hard and acknowledging that, um, we are, are uh, some of us are not graded. I think is is important. I do. Um, so I've got three kids, um, and I remember when uh, my oldest was he was like seven, seven or eight, and so yeah, I was putting him to bed one night, and I, you know, I was like, oh, what would the kids think of us, right, as grown up? So I said, you know, hey Teddy, what what are what are three things you think that mommy likes? And he thought for a moment. He's like, I think mommy likes long work trips, <laughs> which was um was a little hard to hear and I was like oh you know is that the impression um that I want to give but you know he sort of said oh you go to these interesting places and and whatnot um so I think it's and so I think about that and I tell that story to like really communicate to myself that it's hard this is not a game of perfect um and that you have to allow yourself some grace that um it's not always going to be perfectly neat at work it's not always going to be perfectly neat at home um south's point about having a supportive spouse is super important um i think in this sort of modern life and the sort of nature of commutes and you know uh dual careers and and so that's uh that's important um but yeah just give yourself grace and find some ways you can kind of channel that um, personal, um, you know, uh, where you really sort of are able to kind of achieve something beyond a work context, whether that's like running or gardening. I think it is good to have those those touch points that are really detached and separate from work. So I love BBC Sounds and I listen to it all the time. Um, I would not say that's my touch point in terms of actualization because it's too close to work. Like it is something like, um, you know, uh, spin class or something that just has nothing to do with uh, national security. So I think acknowledging it's hard, acknowledging it's really hard for other people to have elder care for parents is really tough. Um, and I think uh, interacting with people from the perspective that they're probably going through a lot that maybe is not on the surface is important too. So anyway, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to return it to a positive note. But um, yeah, I think it, it's hard, but it's worth it because mm -hmm. these jobs are are super important to our country. Over. Hey, that's, okay. that's great. Hey, Deb, can I step in and 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 uh, 
And thank you so much. So I, I agree with everything that Safa and Maureen both said. I, I, likewise, I have a very supportive spouse. He's remarkable. And I support him as well. He has a pretty, uh, pretty uh, high-stress job, too. And, uh, and our kids are grown. So like I said earlier in some of my comments, it's the season of your life that you really need to pay attention to. When my children were much younger, I lived much closer to where I was. And that made it easier uh, to, to be a good parent and co-parent with my husband and, and have good family time, right? Did I get it right all the time? No. Uh, but to Maureen's point, you got to give yourself some grace. The reason I, I, I wanted to, to step in is that that you all um, embarking on your careers, whether it's interns or when you graduate, you enter into the workforce, don't forget that you have agency in this and that, that your coworkers and your supervisors and your managers and your leaders, not always the same thing, hopefully not mutually exclusive, but not always the same thing, um, are not mind readers. So if you're struggling um, to either adapt to whatever your work culture is or what the tasking is, or you just have something going on in your life, people aren't mind readers. So just talk to your boss. If you need to take a step back and like Safa said, eight hour days, that's all I can do for the next six months because of X issue or whatever. That is totally fine. In fact, if your boss can't handle that, then you know, they need to look at their resources uh, uh, to figure out how they're gonna get stuff done. But, um, but have those conversations early and often with your coworkers and with your, your management team uh, about your, your desires, but also what is actually going on with you. Some of the most insightful conversations I ever had with people were when, you know, maybe something wasn't going right at work. Uh, performance was down a little bit. Maybe they weren't on time all the time, or they would call in a lot or whatever. And it took one time of me being like, I'm the supervisor. I'm going to figure out what's going on here. And then I'm going to fix it. Of having a conversation with a person and they had a lot going on in their life. I mean, I, it, it was just remarkable. I'm like, okay, I'm now switching to how on earth are you managing all of this? And it's really, really important. Don't, don't let it get to the point where you are putting your career or your health, which is more important, at risk early and often, have conversations about expectations with your coworkers and, and your boss. And I think that that will enable you to, to manage things as you're moving into more and more uh, positions of responsibility, like Maureen was saying. But I'd say I, there are a couple of things that um, have been an absolute lifeline for me. Uh, golf, which I'm terrible at. I'm really bad. Like it's a super frustrating game, right? But you're out in fresh air and you can do it alone. You can do it with other people. It actually, when you have to hit the ball as many times as I do in every round, it is actually really good exercise. Um, so that's one thing that really is like some mental floss for me. And then I just, I read really, really light, silly historical romance novels, which are 180 out from the basically doom and gloom of national security intelligence reporting, right? But that's where I turn my brain off. Uh, and I, it's not like I'm reading them every single night, but there are times where I'm like, all right, where's that tattered old paperback? I need some time to just totally do a core dump and do some mental floss work. So I, going back to the, what I would have told my younger self, I wish that I had had somebody saying, hey, you need to take an afternoon off every once in a while, go play golf, like go hit ball somewhere, go for a trail run, or just like go down to Barnes and Nobles and buy some cheesy paperback book and just sit in a park bench, uh, do that. Everybody has their own thing they're going to do, but uh, learning how to unplug and recharge, which sounds silly, you know, like diametrically opposed, but it's actually the most restorative thing that you can do. I amen to all of you. It's so true. Uh, I we actually have a couple of questions in the Q and A, and uh, wanted to pop out this one real for uh, if we could get some um, 
pretty succinct answers to these. Uh, can anyone comment on the advancement of women in the national security arena workplace? An organization called the Leadership Council on Women in National Security works to find opportunities. Uh, do you see that the playing field is being leveled? And I can personally say from the day in the early 2000s when I was the only woman in a leadership position in the entirety of DIADI, it is significantly changed, but that's just me. Uh, I will open it up to the, to, to the ladies who are doing this for a living now. Uh, I can take a first swing if it's helpful. Um, I think one, I think short answer, yes, as you think the playing field is being leveled. Um, I'm also very spoiled where I'm growing up and I, I came of age in a time and a space where there were more, more women in, in leadership positions. And I'm really, I'm spoiled by that because if you see folks who look like you or have similar experiences to you, it's not so out of this world to consider an opportunity like this for yourself. Um, however, I do want to call out one particular organization that I think is honestly just doing incredible work in this space is Girl Security, really trying to focus on getting young girls and gender minorities at even at the K-12 level interested in, in opportunities in national security. Um, and specifically looking at the framework of women operate in a world that isn't really designed with us in mind and that we operate in a real world that might even be less safe for us because of our gender. Um, because of that, we might actually be better at national security or more attuned to national security because of that. So how do we provide some frameworks and guidance for young girls to think about war games, to think about, uh, about, about resilience and national security more broadly and offer those kinds of activities and educational opportunities for them so that when they do go to high school, they, they know what coursework to take to prepare for college if they do decide to go down this, uh, this career path. If they don't, that's totally okay. They at least have the, the mindset to think about these issues and be much more, uh, much more informed citizen. Okay, what, what was that organization again? I missed Girl, that. Girl Security. Girl Security, okay. That's, that. I'm gonna have to look it up. Uh, Mo, uh, excuse me, Maureen, I'm getting familiar. Uh, Maureen or Layla, do you guys want to weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I've been, like I said earlier, in this business uh, full time uh, for uh, almost 25 years now. And, and I was very fortunate that the very first uh, agency I came into, the Marine Corps Intelligence Activity, uh, my direct line supervisor, their supervisor, and the senior civilian in the command were all women. And so I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I actually made a comment to a male Marine colleague about how excited I was that it was all women in this chain of command. And he, he caught himself, but he was sort of like, yeah, isn't that interesting? And I was like, actually, your reaction was more interesting uh, to, to me. But he caught himself uh, pretty quickly because they were all three remarkably competent, brought different, completely different things to, uh, to the table. Um, so I was fortunate when I came in that to me, it was just like situation normal. Um, it's also the intelligence community has a um, historically has had a lot of women in leadership positions, and that's because most of the intelligence community was created, you know, through the OSS and the INR after World War II, and women weren't on the front lines in uniform in World War II, but they were heavily invested in the bureaucracy back in Washington. And so you can look back in the history of the State Department and the uh, Intelligence and Research Agency, you know, INR, uh, and then the OSS, and that became CIA. And 
there are just tons and tons of women that were involved in the intelligence world. Uh, and that trend has remained. I, I think that they're statistically speaking, the intelligence community has a higher percentage of not just female employees, but female leaders, uh, you know, versus Department of Agriculture or some other, you know, cabinet level uh, agency. You'll have to check me on that, but I'm pretty sure uh, that we're higher. Now, it seems that it is not as high because we work so closely with the military. Uh, Maureen and I in particular are in the military, defense intelligence enterprise, which is a part of the intelligence committee. So it sort of normalizes like gender balances because of that, because the military is so significantly um, skewed towards uh, male uh, members. Um, but I, I just, I never felt like it wasn't something that I could do uh, simply because my first day on duty, my first three line supervisors up to the very senior civilian within my agency were women. Um, and they gave me great opportunities. They dragged me to meetings. Um, they tossed me over the transom. Uh, my second day on the job, um, Dana Harmon uh, came to me. She was my division chief and said, hey, I need you to go up to DIA to sit in a meeting. Um, it was a, um, I can't remember exactly what the meeting was. Uh, there, and I said, I, I, I don't, where, what is DIA? I was like my second day on job, right? We need you to go represent the Marine Corps at this joint um, intelligence, something, something, something. And I was like, I don't even know where the bathrooms are. And you want me to go represent the Marine Corps at this city? And she was like, you'll be fine. Just take notes. Don't sign us up for anything kind of thing. She was like, just take notes. You'll be fine. Introduce yourself. You'll be fine. And that the community, people laugh about our name, the intelligence community, but it really is. People are pretty welcoming and they welcome you if you're new, they ask about you, put you on distros, invite you to meetings. And that's how the community actually forms itself in addition to our normal bureaucracy. Um, so I was just very fortunate that uh, I always had women to look up to. Uh, and now I am the senior woman in, in Marine Corps Intel uh, as a civilian, uh, even actually as even, um, I think the most senior female is a, is a colonel uh, in uniform. Uh, and so I take that responsibility pretty seriously um, and spend a lot of time doing um, meeting with people and um, catching up in mentoring events, stuff like that, which I th thoroughly enjoy. You got to pay it forward, honestly. Um, but yeah, my experience has been that the intelligence community is very welcoming to women. Uh, you, you only have to go look at Sue Gordon, who's the principal deputy director uh, for intelligence. Right now, the director of intelligence, Abril Haynes, is a woman and her deputy is a woman, uh, Dr. Vixen. Uh, and there have been agency heads uh, that have been uh, that have been women. Uh, so I think it's a pretty good track record in the intel community. Okay, Maureen. No, no. I mean, I I think you guys covered it. Nothing more for me. Okay, I will say, just personally speaking, um, that the women that are in the community now are brilliant and smart and tough, uh, but they also care. Um, I will say that personally, my strength has always been the attributes I have as a woman, i.e. I'm much more empathetic than a lot of my male counterparts were. And um, I think bringing that difference to the table was a, a really good thing. Now, that's not to say the best person I have ever worked for is male. He's the DIA chief of staff. I'll put in a plug for John Kirchhofer. Um, fabulous human being. And he is probably the most empathetic person I've ever met, male. So it's not just a female trait. Um, 
but it, it is a skill that I think good leaders have. And it's something that's easier to women than they are men. Um, but I will go back to the community has changed because literally out of the couple of hundred people in leadership positions in the directorate intelligence, when I first became a quote unquote leader, I was the only woman. And I distinctly remember my boss at the time. It's been, it's been 20 plus years, but I remember my boss at the time saying, you do realize that you are joining the, he used a F expletive deleted uh, old boys club. And he was right, but that changed. And it and certainly has changed for the better. Um, have a, two more questions. I think this one is really interesting. So I'm gonna to toss it out there. Um, what national security issue keeps you awake at night? Uh, Maureen? Um, I think we large just the personal capacity to um, my employer, but um, I mean, I think they're saying, I mean, so the landscape is one of strategic competition. You are colluding together and, and um, really seeking to reset the world order in a way that's disadvantageous to democracies and um, and you know the the families of countries that uh, across the world that are democracies. So I think it it is the combination of the very uh, near term crisis of the Russian invasion, reinvasion of Ukraine, and and the danger of that wine widening. Um, and um, I think then it's sort of paired with that long term. Um, it, technological and um, broadening of what the PRC um, aims to do um, in terms of uh, its position in the world. And so how we, the US, how our allies in NATO um, come together and help protect uh, democracy, the world order, a way that's fair for all countries, I think is certainly at, um, at a very fragile moment, um, but it is one also defined by tremendous cohesion among NATO allies. The joining of Finland a couple weeks ago shows that there is clearly a core um, of countries who are willing to step up against Russian aggression. Um, so I think it is, what keeps me up at night is sort of the prospect of more collusion among our strategic competitors, layering on advanced disruptive technologies that potentially you know, could really unseat our global economy, uh, the way uh, democracies in the world operates. Um, and that you know, we have to fight every day by giving what we call decision advantage to our policymakers to make sure that um, the US, our allies, our partners really can uh, continue to, to preserve democracy and preserve um, you know, our way of life. So I think that um, it's a big one, but I think it kind of really distills sort of the core challenges we face as a country in national security. Over. Excellent answer. Uh, excellent, excellent answer. Uh, Safa, a question specifically for you. How does the Atlantic Council and think tanks in general interact with government policymakers? Yes, yeah, it's a great question. I think the best way to frame this is that that, that, that type of engagement can exist on a spectrum uh, in terms of complexity. 
um, something very simple or a very simple form of engagement is can be us uh, offering, say, a briefing for a, a decision maker at, say, the DOD who's looking at a specific cyber issue. Um, that, that's a matter of us, one, finding the time and the place to connect with them, but also to identifying the right kinds of experts who can sit down with them, answer questions that they have, raise specific issues, and provide that context that they really need to help make better decisions or to flag specific opportunities for additional research where uh, government resources should be allocated in order to make things more secure. Um, that's something that's very simple. Something more complex could be a, a type of engagement with, with, again, let's say, for example, a federal, a federal agency or a department where they provide resources or funding to a think tank like the Atlantic Council to do research and engagement on a very specific issue. Uh, one that comes to mind is our Maritime Cybersecurity Project that we did a few years ago with the Department of Energy and Idaho National Labs looking specifically at the unique vulnerabilities that exist uh, in the maritime sector, looking at ships, looking at ports, but also looking at the dependencies. And I think you see this a lot in cybersecurity. There's so many dependencies because one thing is insecure, everything else gets insecure, and how that can have significant impacts on, say, our, our energy resources just because so much liquefied natural gas travels through, through waterways. Um, that's a much more complex sort of engagement that we had with federal government a few years ago. Excellent, thank you. Um, Maureen is still with us. Our video has gone, but she is still with us. Um, let's see, I'm looking at a couple of other questions here in our last few minutes. Uh, there she is. Um, we did have someone ask, and uh, Safa, this might be a good question for you, but uh, also for Maureen and uh, Layla. What other national security jobs should people consider uh, besides the parts of the intelligence community that we are talking about uh, here? Uh, Safa, do you want to, or Layla, whoever, any any commentary there? Sure. I mean, there's the intelligence community um, is is made up of agencies uh, that their entire job is intel. And then there's other agencies that are members, full-fledged members of the intelligence community where intelligence is just a small part of their job. For instance, the FBI or Department of State, both significantly involved in national security, but just have very kind of relatively small elements that are part of the intelligence community. They do other parts of national security, whether it's through the diplomacy, diplomacy vector or um, law enforcement and judicial kind of thing. So there's, there's plenty of of work to be done uh, and different kinds of careers to be had across the national security enterprise to include medicine and science and technology research. Uh, things that, uh, you know, I think we discovered in, in about, you know, January of 2020 uh, that a pandemic can come, is, is a national security threat. And, uh, and the people that kind of got us out of that pickle were doctors and scientists, right? Uh, so there's a, a tremendous opportunity across just about every single uh, soft science and hard science that you can imagine that contributes to national security. Excellent answer. Um, last question in our last few minutes, and I will start with uh, uh, Maureen, I'll start with you, and then Safa, and then Layla, uh, and we'll close out. Um, and it's kind of revisiting what we started with. Uh, as people are getting started in college, what would you focus on to be prepared for your job? Um, so I, I think it would be to really find what, what area drives you and um, 
you know, work on the fundamentals in terms of writing and being able to articulate your point of view, um, take classes that challenge you, but sort of figure out what discipline, what maybe area of the world that most appeals to you and try to try to specify, try to really uh, dive into that and bring that specific skill set. Um, I think that, um, you know, and it could be, it could be cyber, it could be space, it could, it doesn't have to be a part of the world. Um, it can be a, a, a functional element too. And then, you know, look to pair that with kind of the robust ability to critically think and to write. I think you will be on the road to success. Over. Okay, thank you. Anything to add, Safa? I think for me, the only thing I would do differently is maybe taking a computer science course or two just to get that technical literacy that can be really useful to help contextualize some of the issues that my team deals with. One thing that's a little bit different that I would not have expected until about a couple of years ago is maybe a course or two in organizational psychology. Um, being able to build a team really well and work across different teams with different priorities and equities um, is extremely valuable. Uh, especially when you work across an organization like the Atlanta Council, where we have 16 different centers and programs um, building. Sometimes you don't get consensus, but if you can get cohesion, that's really good. And organizational psychology is really instrumental there. Very good point. It's You're only as good as the people you work with. Okay, Layla, anything to add there? Not really. I think they both said it really well. Okay. Well, I want to thank everyone for uh, joining us today for this. Um, it's been uh, entertaining and fun for me to hear from new and old friends. Um, again, I'll put a plug in for the Tennessee World Affairs Council, uh, TNWAC, uh, TNWAC.org, if you would like to join or look at all of the programs that we offer. Um, and uh, we are a nonprofit looking at uh, educating Tennesseans uh, on the world and supporting students who are looking at uh, international careers. So this has been the Women in National Intelligence panel with three excellent uh, uh, volunteers who have joined us this morning. So um, please join us again in the future when we will be doing additional programs. Check our website for those. Thank you very much.